it is so good to be back at uh, Center Point. I have really, 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 uh, really, really missed this place. And uh, believe it or not, I really, 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 really miss Pastor Jay, too. Uh, do remember him in prayer. He's been suffering this last week with uh, kind of a severe uh, sinus attack. I had breakfast with him this morning. He's, he's doing better, but uh, do include him in prayer. Uh, I want to give uh, a shout out, of course, uh, to uh, our Richland Hills campus also. And uh, those of you that are watching the video there, if you've never, ever come to this church, you really ought to give it a try. In fact, uh, talking with Pastor Jay, the church at Richland Hills has almost doubled in the time that uh, my wife and I moved away from here in February. Uh, we live in Branson, Missouri. Now, we are not entertainers up there. We're just purveyors of entertainers. And we go to a lot of shows up there. I also want to give a shout out to anybody who happens to be watching the videos, too. And take it from me, if you're just watching them online, this is really a great church, isn't it? It is. It's a great church, and you ought to come and see. And I also want to give a special shout-out to my Friday morning Bible class, which is held at the Keter Center on the College of the Ozarks in Point Lookout, Missouri. I just want to say hi to them because they're going to watch. And they prayed for me on my trip down here on Friday, and I'm going to tell you why they had to pray for me in a little while. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Jay launched a brand-new series of messages it was called, And He Shall Be Called. And I feel really blessed today to talk to you a little bit about the next step in here, which is He Shall Be Called Mighty God. Now let's pray. Father, as we gather here tonight in this Advent season, the season of preparation, as we get our hearts ready for the birth of a Christ child, we call Him Jesus, and yet He has so many other names. Names why, by which he's going to be called, and each name brings a special attribute or a special gift that he has for us. And so, Lord, we pray in this Christmas season that we get ready for this wonderful gift of this God who has been called all kinds of names. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've ever raised kids, you know that one of the most interesting things you do is try to figure out what your baby's name is going to be. Now, when we were expecting our first son, we were going to call him Christopher Andrew. And my grandmother said, oh, you don't want to do that. They'll call him Chrissy, which is, explains why we call him Eric James, I guess. Uh, we decided to call our daughter Teresa Lynn, although we made it a little different by leaving the H out of it and adding an E on the end of Lynn, so it was a little bit different. Uh, you know, but we go through that stuff, many of you have done. You know, do we name him after the mother? Do we name him after the father? Do we name him after grandpa, a favorite uncle? Uh, do we uh, take a name that seems to be popular right now? Or do we make up a name? Oh, man, I, I know a lot of people. Just, I teach down in prison. I've heard names down there that somebody had to be making that up. Um, I, had a, I knew a, a secretary at Hong Kong International School a long time ago. And Chinese people, when they adopt American names, pick out some of the funniest names. I know this guy whose first name was Sheltox, and that's the name of a bug spray that's made in Britain. Now, I don't know if he knew that when he took that name. But uh, names are really important because once you pick out that name for your child, they're stuck with it for the rest of their life. And since babies have little or nothing to do with the selection of their name, they're either forced to live up to that name 
or even lift down to that name. Now, I decided to do a little bit of a, <coughs> a Google search on, I just arbitrarily picked out two names, Jay and Barry. They just kind of came to me. And so I took the name Jay, and I looked it up, and I found out that Jay is an English baby name. In English, the meaning of the name Jay is to rejoice. Isn't that interesting? Pretty jolly guy. It comes from the Latin word Gaius. But it had a secondary meaning, believe it or not. It can also be used as a nickname for someone who talks a lot. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, then I took the name Barry. I kind of like that name. Uh, I was told that they got it off a Ouija board. I don't know if that's true or not. I hope not. But Barry is a, an Irish baby name. In, in Irish, the name of Barry means fair hair. And I don't know. I've... I don't know I have enough to be called fair anymore. It's hardly fair what I got left. But it's also the name for courage or spear. Kind of interesting. I mean, names are important because you, you kind of really tend to become whatever you are called. And every once in a while, you're going to run across somebody who actually has multiple names. For example, I heard of this one person whose name is Charles Philip Arthur George Windsor. Now, some of you will actually know him as Prince Charles. And I guess if you're a prince, if you're going to be royalty, you had to have a load of names. But I was also interested in what's the longest name anybody ever had. I think it's going to be up here on the screen. Adolph Blaine, Charles David Earl, Frederick Gerald, Hubert Urban, John Kenneth, Lloyd Martin, Nero Oliver, Paul Quincy, Randolph Sherman, Thomas Uncas. I have no idea what that is. Victor, William, Xerxes, Yancey, Wolf Schlegensteiner, Hausen, Bergendorf, Sr., now, if there's a senior, what does that mean? <laughs> there's some poor other kid who's been saddled with that name for the rest of his life. Uh, you, you could only pray to God that he would have nothing but girls. Now, names, they seem to have some importance, and so it is with Jesus. And so, way before Jesus was born, about 800 years before Jesus was born, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to Isaiah and said, I want you to tell some people about this coming Messiah. And he said this coming Messiah was going to have at least four different names. And so you see that Bible passage, Isaiah 9, 6, For us, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, each of those four names actually unlocks a certain number of attributes, uh, a kind of a different aspect of Jesus, if you will. And each name tells us something about him and what he can do or what he can mean to us today. Now, there's a, a fairly popular Christmas carol. I don't know if you started doing Christmas carols yet. Uh, I, I really don't get into Christmas much. I've actually said uh, Bah Humbug more than once. But one of my favorite Christmas carols actually has a line in it that says, What child is this who laid to rest... On Mary's lap is sleeping. You ever heard that carol? But have you ever asked that question? What child is this? Who is this baby? Who is this one that Isaiah was talking about? The one that has four different big long names. Well, these names really tell us about Jesus' wisdom, his power, his security, and assurance. So I'm going to take you a little bit back to last week when Pastor Jay talked about wonderful counselor. Uh, literally a wonder of a counselor. Uh, the writers of the Old Testament said, 
God, our God, talks about things and knows about things that nobody else knows and nobody else understands. He's the ideal advisor. He's the ideal ruler. If you want answers, go to Him. If you want wisdom, James says, if anyone wants wisdom, what? Let him ask. And God, this, this wonderful counselor, will give it to him. Now, this wonderful counselor gives us direction to people. And those who follow him don't walk in darkness. They end up walking in this marvelous light. And so at Christmas time, when you look at any little manger scene, I want you to look at that little baby and say, you know, there's the wonderful counselor. And guess what? This wonderful counselor, there is the wisdom of God all wrapped up in swaddling clothes. But in a couple of weeks, you're going to hear about the everlasting father. In the, in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, it literally means the father of eternity. Or the father of eternities. He's before time. He's above time. He's beyond time. He's timeless, I guess is what we would say. He's the possessor of eternity. And he is eternally like a father. All the best things you could ever say about a father are wrapped up in Jesus. And because he's a father, he cares for you. So at Christmas, when you look at that little baby again, that manger scene, you think about that. You think, oh, there's the everlasting father, too. Man, he loves me like no father could ever love me. And he loved me before time. He loved me while I was here. And he will love me all the way through eternity. And then there's the Prince of Peace. Uh, Literally means the the prince whose coming brings peace. And what Isaiah was saying is that God's plan for world peace is focused in one person. And I got news for you. It's not President-elect Donald Trump. Any more than it was in President Obama or President George W. or any other president who will follow. You're not going to find the cure for world peace in any foreign country. You're going to find it in a manger in Bethlehem. He's the ultimate man of peace. So in this little simple verse you see on the screen, you have four names of Jesus. If you're confused about anything, he's a wonderful counselor. If you are scared about anything, he's the everlasting father. If you are disturbed in any way, he's the prince of peace. And if you are weak and weary and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, guess what? He is the mighty God. Now I'm going to take it back to the Hebrew again because the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, mighty God is El Gabor. Now, El, that's that word for God, and Gabor means mighty. And actually put together, when we say he's a mighty God, what we're saying is he is a mighty warrior. He is the God warrior. Now, that word is used a couple times in the Old Testament. One time it described a guy named Nimrod. You all know Nimrod, right? I've actually called people a Nimrod. (laughs) But in, in, in Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod is described as being a mighty warrior. Uh, If you read uh, 2 Samuel, David gathered around him a bunch of Gabor. He gathered around these mighty warriors. So all of those qualities are wrapped up in this word, El Gabor, the God who is a warrior. Now, there's another word in the Old Testament that is much the same. You've probably heard this one. It is El Shaddai. You ever heard that one? It's a popular song a number of years ago. I think Amy Grant sang it. Michael Card sang it. El Shaddai. It means probably the same thing. The God warrior. The God almighty. 
It, actually, you're going to find El Shaddai more than you'll ever find El Gabor in the Bible. But the only time you see El Gabor is when it talks about God. But to speak of God in this way means that we say God is fully capable of doing anything whatsoever His holiness conceives to do. When we attribute power to God, we praise Him for His ability to do things that nobody else can do. Now, in last week's message again, Pastor Jay, and by the way, if you didn't see last week's message, do yourself a favor. Go to the website like I did. Watch it. It's really good. Not, Jay, if you're watching, I'm not saying that buddy up. It was a really great message. But Jay noted how that word wonderful in Wonderful Counselor refers to God's ability to do something humanly impossible. Humanly impossible. Nothing is too hard for God, Jeremiah said. See, faced with seemingly insurmountable circumstances, then people look to God. But when you're weak, like that old hymn says, and weary and heavy laden, covered with a load of prayer, take it to the Lord in prayer. You're taking it to who? El Gibor, the mighty God, the God warrior. I don't know if you ever thought about Jesus as being the God warrior. Sounds kind of like Rambo, doesn't it? Or something like that. And actually, in kind of our war-torn world, in our overly politically correct world, we often shrink away, I think, from military language, and maybe even more so when we think about military language used to describe God. But in God's own word, what does He do? He reveals Himself in words that portray Him to be a mighty warrior. Now, should we shy away from that? I don't think so, because if God's going to call Himself a mighty warrior, the God warrior, we might as well call Him by His name. The reason being is you're going to fight physical battles, right? You're going to fight spiritual battles. Physical and spiritual battles have been fought from the beginning of time. And until God cracks open the sky, comes down with the angels again, and takes us all back home, we are going to have physical and spiritual battles. And guess what? We, we better have El Shaddai. We better have El Gabor. We better have the God warrior fighting on our side. I just don't know that we could have any greater confidence or comfort than to know that somebody is actually fighting along our side in all of our battles. So today we're going to try to figure out what, about this mighty God, this, this uh, God warrior who rescues. Let's see if we can learn about it. Well, here's the first thing I want you to know about it. Jesus is our mighty God because He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly where you are. He knows what roads you have traveled in life. He knows what turns you made along life's journey. He even knows all of the dead-end streets you walk down. He knows all of the stupid places you got yourself into. In every respect, God knows you better than you know yourself. And guess what? That can either be extremely comforting or extremely frightening. Let me take you to a New Testament story. Remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well? Uh, I don't know if you remember how the conversation went. Uh, Jesus sends the disciples into McDonald's to get some food. And he stops and talks to this woman and asks for a drink of water. Now, she's taken aback because, first of all, Jews and Samaritans don't talk to each other. Second of all, men do not talk to single women either. 
And if she saw him correctly, that he was a rabbi, rabbis did not talk to ordinary people either. So she's kind of taken aback, and Jesus engages her in a conversation and actually says, you know, I could uh, save you trips here because I could give you living water. And at that time, she becomes somewhat intrigued, and she says, tell me about this living water. And Jesus says, well, maybe we should get your husband here, too, to make the whole thing look right. And I'll tell you all about living water. And it's at that point she says what? I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, bingo, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five of them. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. That's the first time you've told me the truth. That's what Jesus told her. Did Jesus know her life? You bet. He's the mighty God. He knew her heart. Her lifestyle was completely exposed to him. He knows what she's done, and she knows what, with whom she did it. Now, church family, here's something that is particularly scary. He knows the same thing about you and me. He knows what roads you've traveled in this life to this day. He knows what turns you have made to this day. He knows about the dead-end streets, and guess what? He still loves you. Did you watch that video? Were there a few dead-end streets talked about in that? And what did she discover? That God was still mighty to save. That she still loved him. See, Jesus knows exactly where you are. He doesn't need a, a search engine. He doesn't have a giant Google up in heaven. Uh, He doesn't need a satellite or a GPS. He knows the spiritual shape you're in because he is what? He is El Gabor. He is the mighty God. But let me ask you this question. Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are today? Maybe you remember the story of Adam and Eve. Remember after they ate the forbidden fruit? Remember what they did? They ran off and hid. And God comes walking through the garden and says, well, my grandpa used to say God was German because he says, Adam, wo bist du? Because that was in the German Bible. But he said, Adam, where are you? Now, did God ask Adam where he was because God didn't know where he was? You know, Adam was hiding somewhere in the garden? No, of course not. He knew exactly where Adam was. And Adam still thought he could hide from God. But you know, part of being rescued, reaching safety, is knowing right where you are. Part of reaching that safety is acknowledging that you're lost, that you've made some bad decisions, and you turn to someone who can lead you out of those bad places. So where are you? Are you lost? Are you in need of being found? Turn to the mighty God. Here's the second thing I tell you. Jesus is the mighty God because he knows what shape you're in. Now, we're not going to do body shape stuff here. I'd be the last one to talk about that. But let's talk about the prodigal son. Uh, The son takes off, gets his inheritance, wanders off to Las Vegas or wherever, spends it all, ends up, he he is broke, he's dirty, and he is down. He ends up in a pig pen on his hands and knees, and he would have willingly eaten what the pigs were eating. And then the Bible says, and then he came to his sense, he starts thinking, if I go back home to my father, maybe he'll give me a job as at least a servant, I know my father's servants are doing a whole lot better than being a pig manager. So he gets up and he heads home. But as he's coming home, the father is watching. 
And when the father sees him a long ways away, it says he kind of hitches up that long gown of his and he does something that old men in that day did not do. He ran. Nothing funnier than watching old men run, right? And, and he goes and he runs out to greet his son and he grabs his son, throws his arms around his neck and he hugged him. And most importantly, before this guy could say, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to do this for you, he says, no, because it's all about grace. It has nothing to do with works. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to give you instead. Now, even though the son tried to apologize, the father says, bring out the best robe. Give him that ring. Put shoes on his feet because slaves don't wear shoes. We're going to have a big fat calf. We're going to have a good old Texas barbecue because this guy who was lost is now found. He was dead. He was alive. Now he's alive. Now, have you ever wondered what shape that guy, that son was in when he got back home? I have a feeling he was a little bit thinner than when he left. And I bet he was a little bit dirtier. And no doubt I, he had a little bit of a stink on him. A little pig stink on him. And guess what? The father still loved him. Now what shape are you in? Well, God knows. He not only knows where you've been, He knows what shape you're in. He knows that you are thinner He knows you're thinner. Why? Because you've been feasting on the world and not on the Word. He knows you are dirty because you've been wallowing in the muck of this world. And He knows the smell, that stink of sin, is still on you. Paul said to the Romans, All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us, by nature, being born into this world, in sin my mother conceived me, in sin I was born. That's what David said. All of us in bad shape. Jesus knows that. El Gabor knows that. But he still loves us. Someone once said that God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us way too much to leave us that way. God knows what shape we're in, and he's willing to bring us in and build us back up. That's a mighty God. So he knows where you are, he knows what shape you're in, and he also knows how much time you have left. About a month ago, I was heading home after a 7 a.m. Bible study, College of the Ozarks. I was going to pick up my wife. We were going to drive down here, and then the next day I was going to head down to Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola to attend the funeral of one of the chaplains, one of my good friends, Robert Tony, known him for 16 years, who died suddenly at the age of 48. But little did I know as I was heading back up Mount Branson to get my wife that there would be a four-car rear-end collision on the other side of the road. The fourth car rear-ended and then bounced directly into my lane and hit me head-on. Knocked me off the road, down a ditch, and into a front yard where my now-deceased van came to rest shortly in front of a large tree. But I walked away. I guess I didn't really walk away. I rode backwards down the hill in an ambulance for x-rays. Guess what? I'm still here. I tell you that story for a reason. I tell you that story because, and here's a simple and sobering fact, we just do not know how much time we're going to have left. Only God knows, and life is amazingly fragile. I'm going to say something now that, that kind of scared me when I first thought about this again, but I know that the average white male in America, of which I are one, 
right now lives to be 78 years old on the average. If I live to that age, I got six more years to go. In fact, as I lay in the back of that ambulance and my blood pressure is up to 190 over 80 and my pulse is in the 90s, the EMT says, you're very calm considering what just happened to you. I said, I was just laying here thinking. She said, what are you thinking about? I said, I'm just wondering what God still has in store for me. Yeah. Six years. I may not live a long I may live a lot longer. I don't know. But within the last couple of years, several of my friends have died. I mean, some of them were younger than me. And I know that in my ministry career, I've done almost 200 funerals. I've done them for infants, babies. I've done them for people that were nearly 100 years old. All of this is to say, I don't know how much time any of us have left on the face of this earth, but I do know that what the writer to the book of Hebrews said, he said, it is appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. Now, it doesn't talk about how much time you have left. It really is talking about what? It's talking about the judgment. It seems to me that we shouldn't worry so much about how many days we got left, but are we prepared for the time when God chooses to call us home? I've often said I'd rather die in the mission field than get run over by a car in a Walmart parking lot. Yeah, you know, I I want to be out there doing what God's called me to do until the very end. See, God knows how long we're going to walk on this earth. Our concern needs to be more how we're going to do on the final exam. And that day will determine whether we walk on the streets of gold forever uh, and where we live. So our God knows where we are, what shape we're in, how much time we have left. And here's the fourth thing. He knows the efforts, though, that we have made to try to save ourselves in the process. Now, let me ask you, how many of you, how many of you ever sat on Santa's lap at one point in your life and he, he leaned over and he says, have you been a good little boy or a good little girl this year? You ever had that happen? What did you say? Uh-huh. <laughs> We've all tried to be good, but you know what happens? We lie, even to Santa. Take a look at what the, what the Message Bible says here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, saying, or saving is all His. That's God's idea and all His work. All we do is trust Him enough to let Him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. See, God knows our efforts. He knows how hard we try. But only He can save. Only He can rescue us. It doesn't matter how good you've been. You still need a Savior. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, because God sent that Savior to us. The one with the four names. So everybody, God knows where you've been. He knows what shape you're in. He knows how much time you have left. And He knows your efforts. But here's some really good news. He's our mighty God who can save, and He knows that you need Him. Do you know that? You really need Him. A couple of months ago, I did a seven-part message series. I called it the Building Blocks of Discipleship. And uh, all of it points back to depending on the mighty God. And um, I'll give you some of the titles. Here's the first one. God is God and we are not. I'll tell you, that's one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned. If you're trying to play God, if you're trying to figure out God, if you can figure out God, guess what? He ain't God no more. <laughs> God is God. Let him be God. The second message is this. God doesn't need us, but we desperately need Him. Do you know that God was under no obligation to create you? God is under no obligation whatsoever to, to save you. 
but he knows how desperately you need to be saved. And that third message was what God demands, he supplies. I mean, God says, you know, be perfect as your father. But God actually puts the Holy Spirit in us so that we can actually be what he asks us to be. That fourth one is what you seek, you will find. Seek me with all your heart, he says, and you're going to find me. Are you a God chaser? Are you chasing after the Lord? The fifth one was active faith releases God's power. Somebody asked me the other day, he says, Barry, do you pray for more faith all the time? I said, no. I don't even know that we should pray for more faith. We should just use the faith we got. Put the faith we got into practice. Start there. I think if you start with what you got, you'll probably find that you're going to get more without asking for it. The next message was, there is no growth without struggle. How many of you figured that one out? I mean, in the disciples' life, there is no growth without struggle. And the last message is, what God starts, He finishes. Now, all of those messages all came back to the exact same point. It points out that God is behind everything in our life. He is the mighty God. He is El Gabor. He can do it all. And most importantly, for us as sinners, as Acts 4.12 says, there is no sal- there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. You want to be saved, you're not going to find Pastor Jay's name somewhere. You're not going to find my name in the Bible. Only God through Jesus Christ. But here's the important part. Your rescuer doesn't call, come unless you call. Romans 10 says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will what? Be saved. I like the way the message Bible puts it. Everyone who calls, help God, gets help. (laughs) Have you ever called out, help God? You know some long prayers in the Bible. John 17 is a long prayer. I think one of the shortest prayers in the Bible is when Jonah was going down the big fish and he was going, help! <laughs> that was a really short prayer. But he was calling. He needed help. And only the mighty God can get, get there. See, God has the power to seek you, to save you. But where are you? Are you lost? Do you take a long turn? You just need to call on him. Let me take you back a few years to the year 1809, a few years ago. There was a guy that was traveling through Kentucky. He stopped at a store and he says, anything special happened around here lately? The storekeeper said, nah, nothing ever happens around here. Well, yeah, I'll take that back. There was a baby born out the Lincoln cabin last night, but that's all. Just a baby born at the Lincoln cabin. Just the birth of Abraham Lincoln. Now, you never know what's going to happen in the world because a baby is born. But the baby that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 plus years ago has become the centerpiece of world history. That's how we divide it from from B.C. and A.D. Now, what child is this when you sing it at Christmas? He is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. And this gift of the Christ child at Christmas, at Christmas, is the most wonderful gift you could give. I want to go back to Isaiah 9, verse 6. And the most important part of that verse is the first three words, for to us. There's the most important part, I think. For to us is born a Savior, and His name will be called. It's a personal gift of God to you. But it's a gift that requires a response. For example, Don, if I gave you a, a, a a present, 
put it under the staff tree here at Center Point or whatever, uh, you probably would pick it up and you would acknowledge it. You might actually admire it. Uh, you might even think about thanking me. But it's not yours until you do what? Until you open it and take it as your own. See, God has a gift for all of us at Christmas time. Not wrapped in bright paper, not in fancy ribbon, but in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's the gift of His Son, and that gift is for you. The gift is still there, and it needs to be personally received. And friends, you can never truly enjoy Christmas until you can look in the Father's face and tell Him you've received that Christmas gift. And my question is, have you done that? There's a great other Christmas carol called Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Phillips Brooks wrote this, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift was given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming out in the world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still. The dear Christ enters in. Now the people who originally heard this message were encouraged to rejoice before God like they were about to reap a harvest. And that announcement in Isaiah 9, 6, 800 years, ago, 800 years before he came, was a cause for great celebration. That's why our text begins, unto us. Unto us, a child is born. And you know, the image of this newborn baby is pretty disarming when you think about it. You're looking in a crib... And you're seeing the God warrior. That's kind of a weird picture, isn't it? You ever think of looking into the crib and say, wow, there's the God warrior. Lying in a bed of hay, surrounded by the symbols of ordinary life, swaddled in that rough fabric of common of a common peasant, Jesus hides all of his majesty. Now, what's wrong with that picture? That's why we're prone to ask, what child is this? And maybe better off we ought to be asking, what mighty God is this? Isn't this mighty God kind of out of place here? Well, those were kind of the reflections of the poet William Dix in 1865 when he wrote and asked, Why lies he such in mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? That's a good question. Why, why indeed? Why is the warrior God laying where cows and cattle or sheep were. But he goes on, he says, Good Christian spear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Did you get that? The silent word is pleading. And that, that, the whole subject of his birth takes us back to that bigger story you find in John chapter 1, how the word became flesh and came and he dwelt among us. He silently is pleading for sinners through the message of the cross. I'm not going to look at a manger scene the same this year because I'm going to look down there and I'm going to have to say, man, that is one wonderful counselor. That is one mighty God. That is one everlasting Father. That is one, one Prince of Peace. i got to tell you, that is one warrior God. And that little God down there, He is pleading for me right now. He's pleading for me to follow Him. And I'm going to follow Him all the way to the cross. So if you frame this picture of the helpless infant as the portrait of a mighty God, through silence, the baby lies there and God speaks 
but he silently pleads. The power of God, I think, just disarms us as he lies in this manger. We certainly didn't expect this. Now, what this message announces is that life on earth has been disturbed by life in heaven. That's what Christmas is really all about. If power or might mean anything at all, it needs to have an interruption where things are not left alone, but are radically rearranged. And you know, if this isn't crazy enough at Christmas, seeing the warrior God later stretched out on a cross is even more uncomfortable than seeing the warrior God laying in a manger. I don't know about you, but to my way of thinking, it's one thing to see a baby born. But the, the very idea that God the warrior would later die is just plain crazy. But friends, that's how Christmas bursts into our life. Inviting us to the manger, but it also invites us to the cross where human life and the mighty God intersect. And nobody who accepts that invitation to come to the manger and to the cross can hope to escape that utter paradox that Jesus presents by coming in that way under those conditions and on his terms. See, what the Bible text Isaiah would have us believe is that God wanted things this way. He chose to surrender the advantage of all of his power that he had in heaven in order that we might have the advantage of his supreme weakness. The gospel is about this, of course, for us who are being saved, the Bible says. It is the power of God. See, in the past, this mighty God did what? He created this world. Would you like to have been there? Well, let's let's create a world today. Okay, let there be light. Oh, let's have a bunch of frogs. Just the word. It was all there. He created this world. I mean, what, what an unbelievable thing that was. He, he, he parted the seas. He flooded the earth. He, uh, he led his people in the battle. He cured diseases. He cast out demons. And while he died on the cross, he forgave a thief next to him. And then if that wasn't crazy enough, he rose from the dead again and still lives in the lives of everybody who follows him to this day. See, Jesus is the mighty God and his power. That power is available to every last single one of us. I mean, he will live in your hearts if you just ask him. If you, if, if you have never asked Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you, please do it today. Don't put off something that would give you new and exciting, a new and exciting life. I mean, God will give you much more than you can ever ask for or dream about. In Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now unto him, that's Jesus, the mighty God, that is able to do what? Do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. He's able to do it way more than we think he's possible of doing. That's Jesus, our mighty God. And it's humbling. It's really humbling. But you know something else? It is really exciting. It's really encouraging. You know that that God warrior is just a prayer away? He's not just some little baby lying in a manger. He is the almighty God. He's the almighty warrior king. The mighty power of life, in life, and beyond life. The question is, do you know him? Have you accepted who He is? Do you believe in this mighty God? I mean, He's the mighty God, whether you believe it or not. 
But do you believe in him? Have you embraced him in your life? Have you allowed his mightiness to be unleashed in your life? And guess what? I'll be honest with you. You have the power to tell him no anytime you want. But that doesn't mean the power is not there. Have you given up control of your life? And say, Lord, here I am. I'm all yours. I want to enlist in the army of the warrior God. If you haven't done that, what are you afraid of? What's holding you back? Now is as good a time as any to accept him into your life and to unleash his power at work. Let's pray. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. Way beyond anything that we can understand, anything that is just way beyond comprehension that God would love us so much that he would send what looks like an innocent little baby into this world, but this innocent little baby is way more than a little baby. He's the warrior God, the God who fights for us, the God who empowers us, and the God who will lead us all the way to the cross and beyond, who wants to enter our life and give us power to deal with the spiritual and physical battles that we face. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that's really never made that decision, I would just pray that you would ask them, that you would touch their hearts tonight, that in, in the silence of where they sit, that they would acknowledge the fact that they've been down some roads they shouldn't have been down. Life has been going the wrong direction. And may they just ask you very simply, Lord, come into my life and be the power that I need. And then, Lord, we know that you do that without holding anything against them, that you love them, that you've been waiting for them to come. You've been waiting to empower them to live a life that only you can give. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.